Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How would you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset, and that's when you can reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. Look, it's summertime. Transfer window is coming up. It's gonna get crazy. So if you ever just wanna, again, take a step back and relax, read the transfer rounds, read the gossip rumors, grab a Coors Light. It'll be perfect companion for all those transfer merry-go-rounds. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. The mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when the beer is cold. That way you always know when it's time to chill. When you need to hit reset, just open a Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Now that it's finally hot in Minnesota, I'm going to be looking for an easy beer to drink, and Coors Light is perfect for that. It's lagered, it's cold filtered, and it's cold packaged. It's, again, made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies perfect for a moment to unwind and so when you want to hit reset reach for the beer that's made to chill get coors light in the new look delivered straight to your door with drizzly or instacart coors brewing company golden colorado and as always celebrate all right so you're listening to this podcast right now london is blue and guess what we host our podcast on anchor.fm that's right if you're looking to host your own podcast this is the easiest free way to get started. This got a content creation tool allows you to record and the podcast right from a phone. That's right. Don't even need a computer, but you can do it there too. They'll also help you distribute it, which is probably the most challenging part. You don't want to have to mess with that. They got you covered. You can get it right on a Spotify and Apple podcast as well as any other place podcasts are found. And you know what? You can monetize it too. Make a little cash for sharing your great content with the world. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one individual place. So you know what? Head over to your app store, download the Anchor app, or head to anchor.fm to get started if you're ready to launch your podcast and make it happen. Hi, this is Ruben off this cheek. This is William. I'm Mason Mount. You're listening to the London is Blue podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode of the London is Blue podcast. More specifically, this is part two in our We've Got History series that we have uh, started back when football was still a thing, yet here we are, Dan, not much longer, (laughs) time has, not much time has passed, and here we are in a very different world, different situation, but the same theme, the same topic. That's right. We wanted to make sure that we talked about the history maybe a little further away from today's current events, Nick, and (laughs) go back into maybe happier times, maybe your sadder times, I don't know. But I feel like we needed to tap in a guest to make sure that we got that 100% accurate. When when the future looks bleak, you turn to the past. And uh, <laughs> and Rick Glanville is back with us, Chelsea's historian. Uh, welcome back to part two, Rick. Oh, it's a pleasure, fellas. How are you? Oh, it's, you know, considering the circumstances yeah. quite well, thankfully. I think we're, <laughs> all, we're all fortunate in that sense. Uh, but we're, yeah, all, so... we're all singing Ring a Ring of Roses in England at the moment. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, the 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 simpler times, I, I guess you could say, we're thinking of. Uh, but in today's episode, we'll we'll go ahead and you know continue in our our chronological history of the club Chelsea mm. FC, and uh, specifically, we want to kick it off with winning the first league title, and then we'll talk oh, about yeah. the Kings Road era and becoming the kings of Kings Road, and then then we'll end in a little different area where I think a lot of us. Uh, international fans might be less familiar with, but the hardship in the 80s and kind of what that looked like as well. So again, we've got Rick teed up for all of this. Um, and what better way to continue on from from the first episode, which if you didn't listen to, you need to stop and go back because we started with the founding of the club back in 1905 and got up to this point. So you want to make sure you do that. But the first one right here is the 1955 title. So I guess, Rick, I'll kind of just teed up at large mm. to you in that yeah. sense, um, and just kind of let you give us a little bit of context for this season. Well, we're talking about the title was won for the first time in Chelsea's 50th anniversary year. So there were lots of celebration events. Local artists were making uh, commemorative ashtrays <laughs> for the club, and they were going to make a big deal of it, have a big party at the, at the end of 1955. And the manager at the time, he'd been in place for three years, was... Uh, Ted Drake, who was a full, brilliant former striker. Um, but Chelsea had brought him in in 1952, really, uh, to replace 
uh, Billy Birrell, who was another, uh, he was an innovator in terms of setting up the Chelsea Juniors and things, but, uh, 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 and that was a really, the legacy of that was extraordinary. And Ted Drake, Ted Drake really benefited from that. But again, we hadn't had the success and we hadn't really bought uh, or brought through defenders. So again, it was the same old story of really attractive football, but uh, for a lot of the time, just about fending off uh, relegation. We missed, uh, it just carried on with Ted Drake straight away. Straight away, he didn't have an immediate impact. He said it would take three years for him to turn uh, the old pensioners into league challengers and he was bang on a bit like Mourinho uh, uh, 50 years later he predicted when success would come and he was spot on and how did he do this well Ted Drake was a young manager uh, it took no nonsense there's great stories of him on the training ground he would see his strikers the training used to take place at Stamford Bridge by the way on the pitch and so he would be walking uh, past the stand watching them training on this really muddy surface in the middle of winter and he'd see one of his strikers go up for a header and he didn't think he'd put enough in it. So in his suit, he'd just like take his jacket off and wander over in his dress shoes and his suit and his tweeds, whatever it was that he was wearing. And he'd get the, the winger to cross the ball and he'd jump up and head the ball in the net, fall over, get all muddy and say, see, that's how you put the ball in the net. So that's the kind <laughs> of person Ted Drake was. Um, but he really wanted to take what he thought was a brilliant club a fantastic, famous, popular club. And uh, he wanted to turn them from being what was largely, uh, as we discussed in previously, a music called joke. You know, Chelsea were the butt of all jokes. Lots of films, you'd have things like um, famous comedi- comedy actors. A line would be in there saying, you know, oh, I see, I see Chelsea won. And then the, the joke would be, hold on, they can't have. They won last week. Um, it was this <laughs> idea of the great inconsistence, uh, the ones who would could beat the best and lose to the worst. And he wanted to sh- he wanted to get rid of all that, Ted. And part of his strategy was to really galvanise the support. Stamford Bridge was renowned uh, in, in English football for being fair, fair-minded, applauding opposing goals as much as they would home goals. <laughs> it's difficult to imagine these days, isn't it? The lack of partisanship. Um, so he wanted to he put something in the programme when he came in in 1952 saying, we need to make this a hostile place for visiting uh, uh, visiting players. We need to, everyone, you should live and breathe Chelsea Football Club and don't care about the beauty of a game or the fun of being at Stamford Bridge. Uh, to that end, he also ditched our, our nickname, the Pensioners, name for the Chelsea Pensioners who were residents veterans who were residents at the Royal Hospital just down the road. He ditched that. So, you know, almost 50 years of history trashed. So this is an iconoclast, uh, someone who wanted to trash the old Chelsea and create a new model Chelsea. And this is what he did. Um, He had a few near misses. His first two seasons were really difficult. We missed out on relegation just through um, goal average. Uh, So really scraped through there. But then... 1954-55, 1954-55, suddenly things really started to click. Now, it's renowned um, as being a, a two things this season in 1954-55. Firstly, Chelsea won it with the, uh, the lowest points total that people always like to remind us of. It was 52 <laughs> points, but this is a bat when you've only got two points for a win, not three, and one for a draw. Um, so actually, if if Liverpool, I, don't, I haven't done the maths, but maybe Liverpool's total, <laughs> the ratio, maybe <laughs> it's lower. Maybe we'll, we'll get away with that tag. Uh, but the second thing was that in the spring of 1955, there was a, a newspaper strike for like three months. So you couldn't read about Chelsea's progress. Typical Chelsea, that. <laughs> First time we went in the league and no one can read it. The strike finished, you won't believe this, two days before we actually clinched the league title. So that entire sort of spring, uh, that was what was was going on. Um, So you didn't read about the heroics of Roy Bentley. Roy Bentley was this brilliant uh, pioneering centre forward who was very mobile, dropped deep, like a very modern centre forward. He was the model for that. And he played for England and uh, the team was known as Bentley's boys because he was a skipper as well and he scored 
Uh, he was the leading marksman, incredible figure, lovely man as well. Uh, died, he was our oldest living player until he died a few few years ago. Great man. Um, and uh, alongside Bentley, really, you had uh, people like uh, Eric Parsons, known as the Rabbit, because he would run down the line uh, as if he was on a greyhound track. Greyhounds chase rabbits and he was a winger and it looked like he was the rabbit and the greyhounds would chase after him. Um, some other, Ron Greenwood, our first ever junior player to play for the first team, he played half the matches up to Christmas and then he fell out of favour and he left. Um, but other legends really, Seamus O'Connell scored a hat-trick on his, on his debut <laughs> and uh, uh, Frankie Blundstone, his teenage winger came in. I mean, this is a brilliant story. We talk about our teenagers now but in 1955 you know you had Frankie Blundstone when he first started playing was a teenager and he was a, a real whiz kid a brilliant left winger um clever tricky uh intelligent so he had all these stars uh and that is why we won the league in 1954-55 and we also had hard men like Stan Willemsey I should have mentioned um and Derek Saunders just solid people which we hadn't had for in, in our history, really, we hadn't had the good goalkeepers, good defenders, good halfbacks, people that were just solid and just did their job and then allowed the magicians. To, they facilitated uh, things for the mag magicians to go and do their best work. Well, Rick, really quick, I think just kind of calling back to part one, uh, you know, to, to make the context come true here. Uh, you, you had mentioned that Chelsea were renowned for buying you know, really whimsical uh, players <laughs> and maybe didn't have enough of, of the hard men side of that. Was that, mm. was that a, a change in approach with this manager, Ted Drake, versus any other kind of manager that had come previously? I think you could argue that maybe some of them had bad luck with some of the players. They didn't work out. But Ted Drake was the, from all I can uh, view from this distance, Ted Drake was the first that took a really methodical approach to the bits that were needed in each department and strengthened accordingly. And as I said, you know, he picked Ron Greenwood up until Christmas and then Ron Greenwood didn't play again. He could be ruthless. He would make a decision. That person worked better. So he's out. So I think there was an, that, that element. He was thinking much more about success uh, and maybe less about what would satisfy the board or the supporters in terms of sort of flamboyance. He just wanted to get everyone over the line and um, he, he wanted to bring success as he predicted threes after arriving he was determined to uh, to win the league for the first time and that's that's what he did the sad thing is that uh, when I was uh, you know I was born in uh, 1960 and so just five years after we'd won the league and so it was 45 years before I saw us actually <laughs> win it and hardly anyone talked about it I talked about it in the 70s and 80s. We really underplayed it. Arsenal fans used to taunt us before we won the league again in 2005 that you won the league in black and white, you won the league in the 50s. And then lots of our supporters didn't even know that we'd won the league in the in, in the 50s because it was, it was so long past that we were all a bit kind of, it was vastly overlooked. So one of the things I tried to do when I started writing for the club in the 90s was to look back at this, 1954-55 and say look this was an amazing moment uh, an amazing position and I'll tell you the other great thing about this you know in terms of Chelsea's colourful history uh, the tapestry of, of our heritage is that we were the first team to be offered a place in what we now call the Champions League and what was then the inaugural uh, European Cup but our mad uh, chairman who works for the Football League, uh, was convinced by the Football League that this European Cup, this new adventure, uh, would, would clog up the fixture list. Um, they were also xenophobic. They didn't like foreigners, so they didn't think there was any value in diluting English football in that way. So they convinced him to turn the, the invitation down. And we were the people, we were the only English club at all of those inaugural meetings, like those planning meetings in France and Italy and everywhere like that. We were there sitting at that table. Imagine how different our story would be had we taken part in that inaugural 
European Cup and won it. I mean, it's one of the biggest uh, open goal misses in the club's history. <laughs> Sounds like uh, Havara Morata there in front of goal at some point. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, Fernando Torres at Old Trafford, maybe, yeah. Oh, come on. So, so Rick, with, with all that said, I know that you mentioned, and I wanted to pick up on the fact that Ted Drake had to change the mentality of what it meant to come and watch a yeah. match at Stamford Bridge. How how yeah. difficult was that change for him to instill? Because that that's closer to what the modern game is today, where it, it, it is partisan, it is um, one tribe versus another. And to hear about a time where you could go to a Chelsea match and you would be applauding other goals in favor of the sportsmanship, potentially, uh, mm-hmm. sounds like a transition that is not necessarily the smoothest to make. No, uh, I'm sure it was gradual, but I think it would have been, the, the, for talking to people that went to the games at the time, and particularly the younger ones, they did take on board that idea. Uh, I think it was quite difficult at first to be a bit more outspoken, but certainly um, when you see the partisanship, if you watch... Pathé News video, and if you talk to people who were at these uh, the matches as we were getting towards uh, the, the end of that successful campaign, you can see the fervour. You can see, I mean, we always took a, a lot of people to away matches, but you know, you can see the emergence of uh, lots more people wearing hats and scarves in blue and white and carrying banners and holding up cards with a painting of a pensioner on them and things like that. So you could argue that part of the reason that there wasn't that partisanship was that there was a certain reluctance to uh, embrace the possibility of success too much uh, because the, the, the failure would be harder to take. So, And I think that's something that's quite in the Chelsea support psyche still now, that we, don't, we never really over-celebrate and we never really take bad times too hard because we've had knocks and it's that kind of mentality I think has been passed down through the decades so we don't you know we're we're not the most fervent um we, we but and we're we also quite prepared to uh recognize our our where we've fallen short as well I mean winning your first league title at the end of the at the end of the the, the decade the you know 50-year mm. anniversary is kind of fun because we look at the 50-year anniversary winning the FA Cup in the current season we're in. Obviously, it doesn't seem like we're going to get the opportunity to <laughs> uh, finish that dream as well. Um, but I think it's really interesting, you know, um, you know, just kind of like the parallels that it seems like this club loved to have. Um, and mm. when they're, you know, obviously 52 points for that season. Um, yeah. But in the final game of the season... Chelsea champions were given a guard of honor by Sir Matt Busby's Manchester United, the, the Busby Babes. I mean, not just that. It, it, what was brilliant was that well, not many people know this, but uh, during the Second World War, football became a regional, regionalized, not national uh, competition. And lots of soldiers, former professional footballers, have become soldiers. And they were able to guest for teams like Chelsea. So if someone uh, came from uh, from the north and they were posted at Aldershot, uh, Chelsea was really the biggest club close to the, the army barracks at Aldershot. So lots of players used to guest for us. And Matt Busby, uh, who obviously the Busby babes, he was the, the, the manager later of, um, of Manchester United. And as you say, in 19... 19- you know, by 1955, that was the case. He had guested four times for Chelsea Football Club during World War II. <laughs> and amazing. in fact, yeah, and in fact, I think, I think it's the 80th anniversary uh, next month of his last game for Chelsea uh, against Charlton. I won't mention the score because we lost. But <laughs> Matt Busby, who was then a Man City player, I think, is it Man City or Liverpool? One of the two. I think Liverpool. Uh, he loved his time at Stamford Bridge. So I think there was a little bit of that uh, in 55, uh, because in the programme, he wrote this really lovely eulogy to what a great football club Chelsea is, what an institution, and how the brilliant football that they're playing under Ted Drake, and more than that, how hardworking they are, and how deserving they were of the title. It was an honour for him to provide this guard. 
for the club that he guested for during World War Two. So a really lovely uh, uh, thing for lovely gesture. But this was a successful club all the way through. Mm-hmm. Reserves won. The uh, uh, the uh, juniors won. And I think if they'd had a women's team back then, they would have won as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's a quadruple, right? I mean, like, it's a it's a weird quadruple reserve A team and juniors winning respective leagues in the same season. Uh, you know, obviously that that wouldn't have happened. And unprecedented in for the club. Yeah, yeah absolutely I mean, unprecedented. It shows you I think what it is is that what people have said for a long time that winning becomes a habit and a habit can spread throughout an institution like like a, a football club. Everyone's looking, taking their lead from the, the senior team, and everyone's raising their game. Because Ted Drake had shown what was possible. I love it. And, you know, again, not only is the, the first title, it's it's throughout the club, like you said, which is something that we are so proud of today. Isn't just the, the first team on the men's side, right? But exactly. you know, now we do have the women's team. Our youth academy is just this, this crown yeah. jewel for, for us as well. So, um, hey, it, it, it didn't start, you know, in, in, the, in the early 2000s. This has been around, exactly. which exactly. is great. Well, we're going to take a quick ad break uh, when we are back, all about being becoming the kings of the King's Road and so much more. Uh, so thank you to the sponsor for financially supporting the show. We'll be right back. All right. So kind of the next step, you know, big step in, in the history path for us is um, you know, the, the King's Road era. So again, like yeah. give us a little bit of context of, you know, what was going on at this time, especially in West London, um, and kind of the importance of maybe even just the road itself geographically. Yeah, well, um Stanford Bridge is on an east west road called the Fulham Road and uh running parallel to it, yeah, just a like a third of a mile or a quarter of a mile away is the King's Road. And the history of the King's Road, it's called the King's Road because it was built so that the uh, King, I think it's Charles I, uh, could get to his palace easily. It was like a private road until 1830, uh, whereas the Fulham Road was a public road. But what it meant was that the King's Road always had this cachet. It was always uh, uh, a little bit um, more kind of uh, boutique-y, uh, always a little bit more upmarket, uh, historic. And it had this, especially in the 1960s, when it was really the the uh, the centre of the explosion of youth culture that um, came out of, of swinging London in the 60s. So all the stuff that's parodied in... Uh, Austin Powers, you know, all that kind of thing. Uh, so if, if, if you can imagine Austin Powers uh, supporting Chelsea, I think that would be, <laughs> that would be a really good fit. Okay. So imagine him being in, going into the shed uh, and, and going, come on, Chelsea, where you can just imagine <laughs> that that would be the case. Um, so what, what was the... As I said, this was like an arts and cultural and sexual liberation revolution that happened uh, in the in the 60s, all about youth. And there were these amazing clothes shops on the King's Road. You had brilliant celebrity photographers, artists, musicians. Uh, you know, the Rolling Stones lived uh, just down the road from Stamford Bridge. And Bill Wyman is still a season ticket holder, as far as I know, at Stamford Bridge. Um, and you had lots of actors who liked the bohemian element of the King's Road and, uh, and, and West London who attached themselves to, to Chelsea as, as a result. And Chelsea had already before then had this association with glamour, largely because um, Richard Attenborough, uh, Lord Attenborough later on, but a famous British actor and later film director, you know, uh, what's it called? Um, Jurassic Park and all these Small. sorts of things. A couple of small yeah. films, right? It's, exactly, nah. yes. <laughs> and uh, uh, when he was just starting out, his first big break was Brighton Rock, a film about uh, young British gangsters, and he played the lead, Pinky. And he'd done the stage uh, version of that, and the producers of the film said, look, uh, it's okay on the stage, but you really need to look a bit toughy. You need to look a bit more wiry now, now that you're playing it on, on, in a film. Uh, so... We'll, 
you can go and toughen up. We 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 can arrange to you for you to train with some with a football team. Which one would you like? And he supported Chelsea, so he said, "Oh, Chelsea, please." So, so this was about nineteen. I think it was nineteen forty-eight, forty-nine, no, forty-six, sorry, forty-seven. And so he was training with Tommy Lawton, who was a, a big star at, at Chelsea at the time, and and uh, a few others. And he got really in with the players, and they really invested in him. He took them on the film set of Brighton Rock and all this sort of stuff. And he. A, a, a lifelong association at the heart of the club began. He was later made in the 60s. He was a life vice president and he was a director and uh, of the club and things. So this all started in the late 40s. And from then, he brought a succession of, uh, of Hollywood and um, West End stage superstars. Uh, and I, I interviewed him about this once, and it was so brilliant, so lovely, because people might not have heard him speak, but he was he was very thespian like this, and he would talk about... <laughs> I said to him, so who did you bring down to Stamford Bridge? I was trying to get a comprehensive list, and he was saying, oh, uh, Johnny, Larry, uh, <laughs> Billy, of course. I'm thinking, who are these people? <laughs> you know, uh, John Mills, uh, uh, Laurence Olivier... Um, John Gilgood, and then he said, uh, um, I wonder, of course, um, I can't think what his nickname is. It was, anyway, the nickname for John Wayne, he said, and I, I couldn't make the uh, association. Duke. Du yes, Duke. Duke, that's it. He yeah. said, Duke. And I was thinking, Duke? <laughs> and then, of course, realised <laughs> that it's John Wayne. Uh, and a succession of other, Terence Stamp and all these other people. But Steve McQueen, he brought down there. Steve McQueen, uh, at the height of his success, so just two years after Bullet or something, the players come off the pitch uh, and go in the dressing room. And Dickie Attenborough is there saying, oh, Steve insisted on meeting you all. I'm terribly sorry. And, of course, they meet Steve McQueen and they're chatting with him and he's sign they're signing autographs for him and all this sort of stuff. Amazing. Coolest man on the planet at the time. But he wants to meet Peter Osgood and Charlie Cook. So that's the kind of stardust that you had at, at Chelsea, thanks to Dickie Attenborough. And I, just to carry on, just to finish that, that kind of showbiz element, there's this brilliant story about Racco Welsh, who was you know, every teenage boy's uh, uh, pin-up uh, poster, you know, from, um, what is it, thousand years, 3,000 years BC or whatever it is, where she's wearing this skimpy, playing a Stone Age woman, <laughs> wearing a, a sort of leather bikini. <laughs> What's not to like? Um, uh, Terry O'Neill, the Chelsea supporting photographer to the stars, had to go and meet her on the set of Hanny Calder, uh, a film that was released in the late 60s. And um, he took out with him, uh, because he knew that she liked Peter Osgood, he took out a full kit, a uh, Peter Osgood kit with number nine on the back, for this photo shoot and got her to put it on so she's got like a it's a, it's a spaghetti western basically so she's wearing a, a like a bullet belt and a peter osgood kit and that is published in the times of london as <laughs> that photo and he said uh the, the the journalist that was with them uh was interviewing her said do you have a message for you you obviously like peter osgood do you have a message for uh anyone back home and she said Tell Osgood that he's uh, he's not that he's not forgotten on the plains of Almeria. Well, Almeria in Spain was where she was doing this filming, and uh, so she in a national newspaper. Raquel Welsh is is giving this little wink and nod towards our centre forward Peter Osgood. The other thing, she came to the game once and she demanded a brandy. She sitting in the rickety old north stand where you're not supposed to drink. They've specially brought her out brandy after brandy. And she didn't wait till the end to leave. She, about uh, 20 minutes into the second half, she decided she had to go. Uh, and rather than go out through the stand, she walked all along the side of the pitch. Now, can you imagine this? There's like 40,000 people in the, uh, in, in the ground. I think we were playing Leicester. And uh, Racco Welsh, the biggest film star in the world, is walking down the side of the pitch. And she stops. When she gets close to Peter Osgood, who's 
playing on the pitch at the time in the middle, uh, just on the edge of the box. And she calls out to him, Ozzy, Ozzy, and waves to him. And <laughs> to his credit, he waved back. <laughs> but these are the kind of things. This is what this is what you you've got as a supporter going in the shed or any other part of the ground. You didn't know who you were going to be standing or sitting next to. And quite often, you know, you'd see Marty Feldman, who's a great British comedian, or uh, someone, some other TV actor, or some someone else famous, a politician or whatever, just cheek by jowl. That's what Chelsea was like. Right, the wealthiest, the most famous, and the most humble, uh, and the most fervent. And that was what it was like to go and support Chelsea uh, at that time. And in the mid-60s, Tommy Doherty was our manager, then Dave Sexton, and they had teams. They, uh, they kind of took the Ted Drake model of having hard-working players in amongst the uh, magicians. So there was graft and genius in equal measure, and particularly under uh, uh, Dave, in Dave Sexton's team, really. But um, you know, we and we, you know, we were on for the treble in in uh, in the mid sixties uh, until the there was this again a classic Chelsea. Uh, I, I always say that um, Chelsea is a team that never lets you be happy for a whole week. <laughs> so you could, <laughs> could be celebrating on the Sunday and then, you know, the manager's sacked on the Thursday or the star player is linked with a move to Tottenham or something like that. But um, we had this thing of... Uh, uh, we were up for the, the trouble. We'd won the League Cup in... 1965, I should say. We actually won the League Cup. So that was the first instalment. We were still in the FA Cup and we were still in a really great position in the league under Tommy Doherty's brilliant, thrusting, vibrant, dynamic, thoroughly lovable team. And, but there was a, a real problem at the heart of it in that Doherty, uh, uh, the relationship between Doherty and the players was fragmenting, particularly between him and Terry Venables. There was real, I mean, it was like two, they were like rutting. It was like the rutting season in, in spring 1965. Um, and there was a huge disagreement. And we unfortunately lost to Liverpool in a semi-final that we should have won in the FA Cup. So we were out of that. And all, immediately after that, we were going to play a, a league game at Blackpool, uh, which would see whether we were still likely to... Uh, go on and, and win the league. So at least we still have the league and League Cup double. Well, unfortunately, we stayed up in Blackpool. Uh, all the players were put in a hotel. And Doherty said that they could go out and enjoy themselves. This is what he planned. But after we lost to Liverpool, he said, right, curfew. No one can go out. The players broke the curfew. Eight of them went out uh, to attempt in bowling this is what they say anyway. This is their story. They went out 10 pin bowling at night and had a few double diamonds <laughs> as the vehicles at the time. And then they were, uh, they went, came back to the hotel. And Doherty says that he was tipped off by like the night porter at the hotel that they'd been out. So he went up to the room and he's looking around thinking, they all look like they're asleep. Uh, I don't know what he's on about. And then he went over to one they, of them. Uh, they stuff the, uh, the, the pillows underneath the sheets. <laughs> no, they, even better. Even, well, even less. Uh, even less artifice, really. They'd uh, he peeled back the the uh, blankets of one of them, and he was still fully dressed. So he just come in. So it's like, no, it's, <laughs> um, no, he completely he was a young manager, and he completely overreacted, really. And perhaps he could have had guidance from the board uh, better. But he suspended, basically sent them home. Like those eight, and uh, we played a scratch team full of kids at the weekend, and we lost really heavily. And that. Uh, any last chance of winning the league disappeared in in '65. So again, another sadly another uh, Chelsea uh, near miss. But uh, and then we reached the FA Cup final for for the first time since uh, 1915 in in 1967 uh, under the same manager Tommy Doherty. But again, it, they, there was a dispute about uh, would you believe. Uh, player allocations for tickets so that they could give them to their families and things. Ridiculous uh, bust up of, about that. 
really bad, poor build up to the to the match, and we were beaten two uh, one by Tottenham, and really didn't didn't perform at all. So Sexton came in and was a a bit more. Uh, uh, it was a breath of fresh air, really, and and then of course we get into the whole. 1969-70, which I know you, you probably want to talk about, the FA Cup, the anniversary and everything. But uh, that, that kind of era, you know, that it still carried on. We were still the King's Road swingers throughout that whole period. So, Rick, an- another thing that I think happened during this time frame that maybe we want to talk about as well is the fact that we just became a, a little goal happy. You know, we had Tambling, we had Greaves, we had Osgood, Hutchinson... Ah. Yes. How, how big of that was a change too? Was that part of the allure that started bringing people into the club at the time? Well, partly that's something that we'd always bought players that scored goals. So that was partly the problem. We would do that, but we wouldn't buy uh, the people that would stop the goals going in at the other end. Jimmy Greaves, uh, one of our most prolific goal scorers who came through under uh, Ted Drake and, and, uh, and sadly left prematurely. Uh, he's the all-time goal scorer uh, in English football league, the top flight. He's the all-time highest goal scorer. And he was a Chelsea product. So we've had that in our makeup. I think it was the other side, the defensive and goalkeeping side, that was more of a problem for us. And Peter Vernetti came in in the 60s. Uh, and he really, until Peter Cech, he was our all-time greatest goalkeeper. Uh, a brilliant, agile, the cat, as he was known. Mm-hmm. And so that made a big difference. But to return to what you're saying about the goals, Bobby Tambling, another youth product, was our all-time highest goal scorer until Frank Lampard came along. He got to 202. And Greaves, as I've just mentioned, was so incredibly uh, prolific. And um, both those two were discovered by the same scout. This is something that doesn't get talked about. Jimmy Thompson, Chelsea's uh, all-time greatest scout, he uh, used to go to the East End of London and convince people to come over uh, to Chelsea from there. And he got uh, Ron Harris, he got Bobby Tambling, Jimmy Greaves, uh, he got um, oh, what, I mean, uh, all of that kind of era. There were just so many players that he brought to our club. He performed brilliantly. But he wasn't just looking for, for goals. He was looking... For, they were looking for other qualities as well. And I think it's easy to uh, think about Osgood for his goals. But what he added as well, I mean, now his assists uh, would be counted. We don't really, you know, no one counted them back then because he was a really creative player. He was also a talisman. He was, uh, he, he could sometimes look lazy on the pitch, but then he would he kind of galvanise the team by himself and his clenched fist or a tackle that he'd put in or a gesture or just a, uh, a big man. And so if he ran around on the pitch and put in a few challenges and or uh, 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 dribbled round players, you know, it got the crowd going. And then again, Hutchinson was a great goal scorer, but he brought other qualities as well. He brought the qualities of really hard work and fearlessness going in where angels fear to tread. So although you can look at the goals, I think particularly those last two, had an equal contribution in their personality, the character and the qualities that they brought uh, to the team. Well, and I think just uh, before we tee up the the 1970 FA Cup epic uh, that that went as far (laughs) as any final has ever gone, uh, one of the things that we interviewed Bobby Tambling back in September that he talked about was just how disappointing the 67 final was and how... And how quickly they couldn't, you know, they were trying to get out of London so quickly because not only did they lose the final, they lost the Spurs. And yes. he he still seemed gutted about it, uh, you know. And like that's, I think that's kind of his, you know, one of the memories that he has of that kind of moment is though even though they were playing good football and that he was scoring a bunch of goals, they couldn't quite get over the hump until 1970, which yeah. currently, you know, that sets up one of the, the most significant moments in our history. Well, and he played no part in that, of course. So you I had know. this first Cockney Cup final, as it's called, the first FA Cup final between two London clubs. Uh, and a huge disappointment of that. And then he was injured in 69-70 and, uh, and barely featured and out of Dave Sexton's plans. He went on loan and to, uh, to Crystal Palace for a bit. So he didn't take part in, a, in that, that campaign. Um, and that 
the 6970, there was something just inexorable about Chelsea playing Leeds in that cup final. You know that the that it was the first one since the war that went to a replay because the, the Wembley final finished 2-2 on a really appalling pitch um, that you really wouldn't, <laughs> you, it, you would, it was just extraordinary that it, as it went ahead, it was just uh, heavy, big clumps of mud were being thrown up. Uh, just really a disgrace to, uh, to English football that they had to play on that. Anyway, that was drawn. So they replay at Old Trafford. So we didn't win it at Wembley. We won it at Old Trafford. And that is the most watched uh, English club football match as far as t British TV audiences uh, go uh, ever, ever in history. Um, and it's right in the top 10 of all time most watched TV programmes in, in British history. Um, 28.5 million people watched that. Oh. Uh, and... Uh, it's just an extraordinary. But I think what it shows you is the pulling power uh, of Chelsea Football Club. We were we were always a story. There was always something uh, worth watching, worth following. There's always it was always incident packed, and you had big personalities, like I said, like Osgood, Hutchinson, Webb, Harris, uh, Benetti. You know, all really big personalities. There was there was something really beguiling about uh, about them. But that, that campaign, uh, the number of times, I, I often ask people that I meet supporters and I say, when did you first start in, when did you first start supporting Chelsea? And the number of people that say, oh, 1970 Cup final. You know, I was five years old, I was eight years old, 10 years old, whatever. Uh, and I just remember watching them beat the goal, you know, the equalising goal, the diving header from Peter Osgood and then the winning goal from, David Webb bundling it in the last minute and how excited they were and the noise that generated by the fans and that beautiful royal blue uh, and yellow kit and things. And you think, you know, it was like a, an incredible moment in Chelsea's history that must have created literally millions of, of supporters. And as I always say to those people, they're always saying, oh, Johnny come late. It's, you know, people talk about this Johnny come late. He's a, who support, started supporting the club quite recently. And I always say to the people that say that, so you never had a first match that you watched. <laughs> you were like born in, like in Stamford Bridge where you had no... You, had, you know, everyone has that first game. And for millions, that was the first game where people fell in love with Chelsea Football Club. I mean, what a what an amazing time as well. And, and I mean, to give it perspective, would you say it is essentially you know, the the most important kind of pivotal moment in Chelsea's history, maybe outside of, you know, the Champions League victory up to this point? I think it's, a, I, I would say so in terms of, if you like, it's, it's reach, the mm -hmm. impact that it had, definitely. And I think, um, and it's interesting, yeah, because on the domestic stage, there's that explosion of interest you know, and... With 2012, obviously, it's a, a global interest because we all know that the Champions League is watched the world over. English football is as well. Uh, and in fact, it's worth pointing out that to lots of uh, uh, people around the world, I don't know whether it was the same in the States, but certainly in South America, Europe, Africa, Asia, uh, the FA Cup final was shown live it was it was kind of given to the world uh, to watch, and so live football wasn't very common in 1970. Nothing like it is now. So it was the one live game of the year for many people. And I, you talked to many Scandinavians, and they would support the team that played in the FA Cup final because this was the rare live game. So I think again we were quite fortunate that uh, we won that game and uh, that it would have been watched by so many millions around the world who would have been converted to our, our cause immediately afterwards. And, of course, the celebration pictures were everywhere after that. So, you know, it was the, the biggest uh, congregation on the streets since uh, VE Day in 1945, you know, oh, celebrating wow. the end of World War II. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people on the street and uh, an open-top bus 
going winding around the streets and pulling up outside Fulham Town Hall, just diagonally opposite Stamford Bridge. And David Webb, half cut still from you know, after scoring the winning goal at Old Trafford. And uh, the players had come down by train to Euston Station in London and then got on a, the open top bus then. And he's still half cut, still drunk. And he's holding the FA Cup and he sees these uh, Chelsea pensioners in their scarlet jackets standing by the side of the road, uh, right near to the, uh, to the bus. And they're going, oh, let's have a feel of the FA Cup. Let's have a feel of it. And he leans over um, to, so that they can touch it loses balance, almost falls from the top of the bus. Marvin Hinton grabs the back, grabs his belt and manages to stop him falling. Otherwise, you would have had a crushed FA Cup, a crushed Chelsea pensioner, and, and uh, a David Webb with his face smashed in. But, <laughs> um, but I think, he, he you know, <laughs> that's probably the only thing he, may, he remembers of the whole experience of celebrating. I think you, you took us on that. You took us on that tour, Rick, and you were, you recounted the the yes. story of your of your walking tour. And it's like the the public health and safety standards back in, <laughs> in 1970, maybe not exactly. quite, <laughs> not not enforced as uh, religiously as they should be. They'd, they'll be sort of um, all have those straps that everyone has nowadays, don't they? On the you know all the parades where they have to be strapped in, and that's what it would be like now, I think. But those that was a, uh, an amazing celebration, and of course, luckily, the following year we had, we won the uh, European Cup Winners' Cup, and the whole thing uh, happened again, and that's an extraordinary thing, you know, beating Real Madrid in nineteen in, in um, Piraeus in 1971 to win the, the, the Cup Winners' Cup, our first European trophy. And we have won more European trophies than any other London club. Um, you know, it's a, an amazing, amazing period in our history. Well, it is the springboard for a lot of things to come. But uh, as we all know, uh, you know, thing, life is not linear, right? There's a lot of <laughs> turns and twists and ups and downs. And uh, I think that's exactly what we'll get into with the last part of this episode, um, you know, is the the 80s here. So uh, yeah. again, last break of the episode when we're back, uh, much different story than what we've told up until this point. Absolutely. All right. You know, I think I'm going to tee it up to Dan this time. Uh, let him go ahead and, and set the tables for, for this one as you... Uh, are the one of the three of us that have spent the most time in the 80s. I felt like it's only appropriate. Wow, <laughs> wow that's, uh, that's, a, that's a good way to think about it. Um, so yeah, Rick, with the you know transition to the 80s, we kind of look back on the fond memories of the 70s and the FA Cup win and the Cup Winners' Cup. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it's a little bit of a economic crisis that hits and, and Stanford Bridge and Chelsea Football Club were not immune to the, the challenges that were facing the world. So how did that shape what kind of happened as we head into the you know late 70s and, and early 80s? Yeah, uh, but partly uh, Chelsea were victims of hubris, their own ambition, overambition, and partly world events. They decided, to, the board decided to, that they would redevelop the ground uh, knock down the old East Stand and rebuild this enormous uh, new cantilevered stand, brand new technology, untried technology, an architect that had never built a stadium before. Um, it had all, it went into all, I won't go into all the detail, but basically they had all kinds of labor difficulties, recession hit, price increases, um, and it was delayed and cost spiraled. And it really crippled the club. And the man who'd brought us success in 70 and 71, Dave Sexton, was still in charge. But he was having to deal with this, this financial crisis. Half the, you know, a third, sorry, a quarter of the ground was closed um, for two years. So the um, crowds were down as well. And it was an eerie atmosphere. And when you went to games, you know, with that half, that, that, that one's, side uh not being used and the temporary dressing rooms and all this kind of stuff so it was it would have been an absolute nightmare to to manage even if it had gone well but the fact that it extended uh over such a long period i think made it impossible for 
for Dave Sexton to do his job. And he was relieved of his duties in 1974. And the corollary to all of this financial problems was that Chelsea had to make economies in the squad. And um, Sexton uh, had fallen out with a couple of our star players. I mean, it's well known that he fell out with like the likes of Alan Hansen and Peter Osgood and David Webb and, and others. And um, the, that star-studded team fell apart. And there wasn't, they didn't get great money for selling them. And the young players that were coming through were good, but not of sufficient quality to maintain the progress that the club had made um, over the previous 10 years. So Dave Sexton left. Uh, Eddie McCready, our former left-back, a brilliant marauding Scottish left-back and hard man who'd played in uh, the Cup successes, came in with the pragmatic approach of, of uh, really keeping one or two of the old hands like Harris and Bonetti, but really having to make do with uh, a very low budget and filling it his side with willing and sometimes able youngsters. Uh, we were relegated in 1975. Um, uh, and just before that, a few weeks before that, Eddie McCready did symbolically, I mean, the symbolism is very strong now, made Ray Wilkins, 17, 18-year-old, his uh, skipper. Um, so that gives you a, an idea. We'd gone from, you know, kind of Harris and, and McCready himself and uh, Osgood and Hudson and all these seasoned professionals. And now a teenager is running the team and he's the best player. He was an exceptional player. But there wasn't enough around him. We couldn't buy players. We were really hamstrung by these financial difficulties arising out of the, the, of the stand. And it kind of spiralled. I mean, really, I, I could just roll off. Uh, you know, we had uh, Ken Shelito took over from Eddie McCready. There were good times. We got promoted back up. And that was a great season, a really exciting season. Um, but really, from 1975 through to really 1993, with honourable mentions for the, 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 the mid-80s, uh, we just didn't, we couldn't really invest like we wanted to do. Uh, as heavily as we ought to have done to compete at the highest level. Um, so I, if I'm talking about uh, like another crisis that happened in uh, 1981, the board was so strapped for cash that they ended up selling out to Ken Bates came in, of course. And Ken Bates did a great job as a, as a chairman, but uh, he wanted to by the, the pitch uh, off the, the Mears family and the other directors who had, who, uh, had owned it, uh, you know, his former directors of the club. Um, but he thought he could play hardball, I think, more than he could. So he tried to argue for a better price. And in the end, they ended up sent, selling it to a developer. So the land on which the stadium was built was sold to a developer who wanted to realise it for... Uh, retail and housing and have a tiny pitch. So you can imagine how emasculated Chelsea Football Club would have been having gone from this amazing arena that had staged uh, FA Cup finals and uh, internationals to be basically a small part of a big retail complex there. Um, now, to his credit, Bates turned that around, fought for 10 years to regain control at Stamford Bridge and eventually did that in 1993, or 92-93, sorry. But this is where the turmoil comes from. You've got no money, you don't even own your pitch, uh, you've had a succession of managers who, who have come in and not done well, like Shelito, Blanchflower, uh, Jeff Hurst, uh, and it was a period of great turmoil. Uh, and, and, and really quick, Rick, I, I think yeah. one of the significant points is when Bates took over, this is the first non-Mears chairman at Chelsea Football Club, Absolutely. right? So, so the family lineage is broken, which is difficult to say. Absolutely right. And obviously that had, they, the Mears, uh, there'd been a Mears presence on the board uh, since 1905. 
and uh, so you can you can just the the idea that the same scions of Gus Mears and JT Mears, uh, particularly JT Mears, um, would sell off uh, the birthright of Chelsea Football Club to developers. I mean, was anathema to a lot of people. Uh, it was a, a really difficult to understand how they could do something um, like that, frankly. And um, I suppose you could say the last good thing that they, the Mears family did was to appoint John Neal John in 1981. And he kind of a really seasoned uh, manager, wily, clever. He was able to kind of overcome uh, a lot of the financial and other problems that we had to create a team that would get, that in 1983, 1984, he's, he's, that season is probably among my favourite ones that I've uh, that I've ever been at uh, that I've ever experienced and they got promotion really quick Rick before we jump into some of the football I think as you were talking about uncertainty and maybe the recession and a bunch of factors that were kind of causing anxiety around the club at that moment do you think that that is kind of what led into this period of hooliganism violence things that were, were not so great parts of, of Chelsea's history or football history in general? Because, I mean, that it is a massive kind of storyline from polite Absolutely support wrong. prior to Ted Drake to, to then incredible violence, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I think there was a sense of, uh, I suppose, a, a sense of um, decay <laughs> may have played a part in that. But I think there are other factors. You, It was prevalent in the whole of society uh youth gangs hooliganism was not uh, solely chelsea's domain uh, sorry it wasn't just at, happening at at um at chelsea and uh it was happening happening everywhere it was like a a rash that was uh taking over society you had uh uh subcultures like mods and rockers these people that some of them rode scooters, the other with motorbikes. They would go to the uh, the seaside and have big fights on the beach. It was a remarkable uh, time in British history, really. Uh, but I think what made it um, partly, I suppose, uh, because Chelsea always had big crowds um, and because we had these people that had grown to love the club through the 1970 successes, you had a a load of young people, that, young men especially, that were going to games. And the culture sort of it caught fire, the fighting culture caught, caught uh, fire at, at Stamford Bridge from, uh, you know, in the early 70s. And not enough was done to try and stop it happening. And it just became a fashionable thing. We were associated with hooliganism. I would, when I was in my teens, if, if I said to someone I was a Chelsea fan, they'd go, oh, hooligan. That's how it was. You were associated with with um, hooliganism. It was, and we were banned several times for for violence in towns. We weren't the only club this was happening to, but we were one of the main ones that uh, at the heart of all of this. And then there was racism that was happening in the late seventies and early eighties. Again, that happened at other clubs, but we were targeted by far right groups and infiltrated, and um, it was uh, something that definitely caught on. Uh, in a significant minority of of our support, and I've, I uh, wrote, uh, uh, as you know, Paul Canneville's book Black and Blue, in which he talks about it, what it was like to make your debut uh, and to be racially abused by your own supporters, Chelsea supporters, in the early eighties. And um, I'm just so glad that we we fought against that. We gradually silenced that those people. And um, you know now you don't you don't experience that same uh, racism at, at Stamford Bridge. Yeah, you know, Rick. Another maybe season in that run up to the uh, the the you know uh, the the 90s or the you know early 90s was the 82 83 season, which is kind of the razor's edge moment where we <laughs> yes. almost went down to the third division. Uh, you know, just. The pendulum shift back and forth. Will they? Won't they? And uh, maybe that's one that deserves a little bit of a mention too. Absolutely right. No, you're you're absolutely right. And I mentioned John Neal uh, being a capable 
uh, coach, but he was the one who was in charge when we were on the brink of disaster in uh, 1982 or 83. And in fact, uh, you know, on the back of all these financial problems and relegations and things, Chelsea have never been any lower than the second tier of English football. When I was staring into the abyss at the end, towards the end of 1983, and um, that would have been the first time in our history. But it was a goal at Bolton, uh, scored by Clive Wilson, that many think is arguably the most important goal in our history, because you imagine... Uh, what that would have done to the club to go to the third division at that time with no money, uh, hooliganism and racism. Um, where would the crowd, would the crowds have gone, come to watch us in the third division? Would we ever have come back up? Uh, obviously, these are hypothetical questions. We can't answer that. But it shows the importance of Clive Walker's goal. And the players at the end, loads of Chelsea fans have made their way up there. All the players went over and they threw their shirts into the crowd because it was such an important, obviously such an important uh, thing to stave off uh, relegation. And would you believe the club charged them for their shirts? They had to pay for replacements after that. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then out of that, like Phoenix-like, John Neal produced this brilliant team with... Pat Nevin, David Speedy and Kerry Dixon, uh, key amongst it, and good defenders and a great goalkeeper and Eddie Nijewski, uh, who took the uh, division, second division by storm and got promoted and then had two really successful seasons uh, in the top flight. And uh, so there was this little hiatus in the mid-80s of, of great football, Pat Nevin being the sort of, uh, footballer that everyone could relate to, or everyone, you know, in a at the time post punk, uh, long overcoat, eyeshadow, <laughs> and a beret <laughs> could relate to, you know, this <laughs> urbane, mm. music loving, exciting Scottish winger. Uh, and again, someone that you could really, you know, you could hang your hat on, on him and be proud to be a Chelsea fan again. Well, we, we spoke to Pat. Um, it had to be last spring and kind of asked him about some of his, his favorite moments from, from those eras. And I think his, his kind of single mindedness, Brandon around just like, you know, I was there to be entertaining and to help score goals and nothing else really mattered to me. Like that kind of just attitude, I think just permeates when you talk to him, just permeates his, his ethos. And I, I mean, he's just so brilliant to to have a conversation with. I mean, my lord! Oh, and, and uh, make no mistake. Um, I mean, he, you know, he's a kind of football poet, if you like. Um, but he, he did love football, and uh, when he went to watch uh, Tottenham once, because one of his friends, Adrian Thrills, a music writer, a flatmate, I think, was a Tottenham fan, and Pat went to the game, and he. I oh, know, sorry, that's a different story, different occasion. We played at, at Tottenham and he was going home by tube. And we'd just beaten Tottenham. So Pat's sitting on the tube in amongst these uh, Tottenham supporters who may or may not have gone to the pub for half an hour before, <laughs> before they got on the tube. And he's sitting down there and he, he he's, uh, realises that everyone's looking at him and some uh, big bloke walks over and goes, Oi. You're a footballer, I recognise you. And he's thinking, no, no. He said, no, 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 not me, not me. Uh, a bloke calls over his friends and they crowd round Pat and they go, hold on a minute. You're that Pat Nevin, aren't you? And he went, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not that Pat Nevin. Anyway, at that moment, the tube doors open. So Pat whacks the bloke to get away from him, <laughs> get him out of the way and jumps off the tube. And, uh, and, and gets away from him. And when I, when Pat told me that, I said I was just imagining that Woody Allen gag. You know the one uh, in one of his films where he kind of he uh, throws these muggers off off the tube train to save to uh, 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 to save this young woman. And he rubs his hands together and say, "Oh, job done." And then the doors open again and the folks <laughs> get back on. 
was well, I said, did you, did you think that might happen? But, he, you know, he was fine. Just punch the bloke and, and run out. Great stuff. Classic, classic Pat. Yeah, gotta love it. <laughs> um, and anyways, interesting. Um, Nick, did you have one more follow-up on that? Yeah, I mean, you just, uh, Rick, you just said that uh, 1983-84, I think, was one of your favorite seasons mm. being a Chelsea fan. I mean, if there's any other anecdotes that you wanted to follow up on, that would be uh, that would be just fine with us. Yeah, well, there's a great one of, uh, I mean, just a thing to tell you how different things were back then. Uh, we uh, we played at Man City towards the end of the uh, towards the end of the season after we'd confirmed promotion, and it was like a first time we played on a Friday night football. It was a live game, and. Ken Bates decided to hold a party for all the supporters at a hotel in Manchester. Um, so it's, it's amazing, really, that this sort of impromptu, well, not impromptu, it's arranged, but all the supporters were invited and given drinks and little uh, uh, buffet and things like that. And he made a speech to them saying, thank you for all of your great support. And it's, it reminds me that back then, uh, it was a very small unit that ran that club. I mean, uh, you know, now it's now Chelsea Football Club is this almost like a corporation. There's so many hundreds of people that work for it. But <clears throat> back then, uh, you had Ken Bates, Colin Hutchinson, and a couple of others. They were the key, the key people, and there they are, uh, standing there with a microphone, thanking the supporters, and in a very relaxed and informal setting that you just you don't really get now. And I think that was a really lovely, lovely moment that that season. Um, I think I'd just what was great was not only uh, was it a successful promotion campaign, but we played sublime football. The uh, we t- we've eulogised quite rightly in the, over the last 10, 15 years about some of the football we played. But when you watched Pat Nevin, David Speedy, and, and Kerry Dixon linking. And Cannaville running down the the wing and Gene King and there were so many great players and so much great football that was was played then. It was really thrilling to watch and um, it was just a shame that John Neal was taken ill soon after we were promoted and he wasn't able to uh, take us on further because I think if we if we'd had a bit more financial backing under his leadership, I think we could have competed for to win the league in the, say, 85, 86, 84, 85, 85, 86, something like that. Well, I tell you what, it, uh, life is not linear as we, as we kick this part <laughs> off. And, uh, but the, the best part about it is that it just can, Chelsea just continues to me, just, you know, reinvent itself um, in new ways while still kind of keeping that core culture that we've oddly had since the beginning and talk about these exciting players and the and just like the different situations the scenarios you come from like this is a resilient club uh, for many mm-hmm. different reasons absolutely and, and again um you know as we go back over this this part you know winning the first league title in 1955 this swagger in the 70s of the kings of the king's road ownership change relegation almost tier three hooliganism all this stuff through the 80s and then kind of hitting this nice upturn right at the end is the perfect kind of way to to lead into our, our part three which will be another episode um that will you know pretty much take chelsea from the 90s up to the current day so anyways um rick it's been a huge blast yet again to kind of cover this next half century that we almost got through in this episode um, my pleasure and just plugging part three as well so uh you know again go to social media thank rick engage with him there and until next time chelsea fans you know what to do keep the blue flag flying high